0: Recording started. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, February 24th, and our guests tonight are Michael Horn and Heather Staker from InnoSight Institute, who are going to talk to us about a a couple of case studies, I think. Um, Michael and Heather, welcome.
1: Thanks so much. It's good to be here.
2: We're
0: glad to be here. Thank you, Steve. Absolutely. Now, it's so funny we got caught up in our um, making sure that we were getting your um, audio working there. Heather, that I forgot to load the rest of the slides. So what I think I'm going to do is, Michael, why don't you start out by giving a short introduction? I'll get the rest of the slides loaded. uh, And then we'll take a quick break and go through some uh, technical stuff, um, and click back. And it looks like you're going to talk about two case studies, so maybe you could mention that.
1: Sure. Thanks. Thanks so much, Steve. Uh, and, and once again, thank you for uh, all, all the great work you do in
0: hosting this Future
1: of Education series and uh, giving not just us the opportunity to talk about the research that we have ongoing, but indeed uh, the uh, j- just the incredible um, uh, array of people that that you continue to bring in here so 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 a big thank you to you uh as well um the uh let's see and, and hopefully um we we have full audio still here but uh the um uh, what we're gonna do today is uh heather staker on 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 the InnoSight institute team uh has had the opportunity over the last uh uh, s- several uh months really to basically be investigating two different case studies one that took place in North Carolina uh over a connectivity initiative that they implemented to basically extend broadband access and a second one a case study when you hear where she tone, explored the you Alabama the first uh, person access, to join the uh, case study as well, and uh, and they're both interesting looks with, with different spins on some interesting and similar problems that we'll have fun talking about today, and, and Steve, I'll kick it back to you. Uh, you just put the slides up there with the two of us, so I'm assuming that they're loaded, and uh, I will let you talk about the mechanics of using Illuminate and some of the opportunities and find out where our audience is from.
0: Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everybody, for being patient. Heather, are you back on? It looked like the audio cut out there for a minute.
2: I, I'm back on. I'm back on. Can you hear me? Okay. Is there an echo? I apologize for the technical problem. there an I apologize for
0: the technical No, it's not your fault, and you're doing great. And I'm not hearing an echo. Although I will turn my mic off to make sure that that doesn't happen. It may be because I had my microphone on. Uh, Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate and Learn Central, the project I work on. To Learn Central social network for educators is at learncentral.org. It is free, and we encourage you to join us. Coming up on the future of education, uh, next week, Jim Klein talks about social networking with students and student technology. We have a panel on the third on unschooling. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Kevin Kelly's rescheduled his uh, interview on what technology wants for the week after. If hopefully, there's something on that list that's attractive to you. and we will have you join us. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded. Yesterday we heard from Steve Wheeler coming in from the UK. That was a terrific uh, show. Before that, John Seely Brown, David Perkins, lots of fun activities and events. And they're all recorded and up at futureofeducation.com. We do have some fun crowdsourced activities at the Q and ISTE shows. Both have an Con the day before. Actually, at ISTE, it's just the day before. Um, I'm sorry, at ISTE, it's the Saturday before. At Q, it's just the day before. But go to com to get more information. Both shows also have Bloggers Cafes. We have wireless and lots of place to spread out and talk to each other. Plus uh, the Unplugged series, Q Unplugged and ISTE Unplugged, where you can present at either of those shows, even if you've never presented before. We have a presentation area, and we live stream those those presentations out. If this is your first time in Illuminated is participative, you'll see some emoticons at the bottom of the participant window, smiley face, a clapping hand. You can use those to indicate how you're feeling. You can also put um, messages in the chat. Uh, And if you like, it's probably easiest to go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. That makes it a little bit easier to see the chat. That's View Layouts and Wide Layout. Now, as Michael said, we'll give you a chance to indicate where you're participating from. Look for a wand with a red star at the end to the left of the map. Click on that and then click on the map. And feel free to shout out in the chat as well uh, where you're from, time, temperature. Again, we've got someone from New Zealand. Those of us who've watched closely what's happened there, keep, keep hoping for the best. Again, we sure appreciate your being here, wherever you are listening from especially if you're listening to the recording. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so, Michael, this is kind of a departure from the previous shows we've done. Um, You know, the the topic being more technical um, and related to connectivity. I think we've pretty much focused on uh, more sort of the online uh, learning aspects, which always touched on pedagogy. Um, But I'm going to turn things over to you and let you talk a little bit about this. And um, I'll be here as your support. Let me know what I can do and um, the the game is yours.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. Really appreciate it and uh, glad again that all of you have uh, joined us. We have a good audience for uh, Steve, as you said. Uh, One of the two case studies being uh, uh, much more technical uh, in in thinking about infrastructure for some of this emerging uh, world of online learning and and so forth that that really is is, uh, continuing to grow and and move in different directions in all shapes and sizes. So, excited to have you all along for the ride and excited to have Heather Staker on uh, here as well. Uh, Heather is the co-author of these two case studies, one on North Carolina and one on Alabama that I just put the links into the chat uh, from so that you're welcome to check them out either during this or or after as well. And of course, I'll ask uh, Heather, uh, uh, have a series of questions. Really, the way we've used these forums is to explore uh, some of the, uh, the themes that sort of emerged as we did this case study research, which really was just meant to be descriptive and start to uh, describe different phenomenon that are emerging and how they were doing so, and, uh, and, and some of the things that really grabbed Heather as she dug into uh, these case studies, and then, of course, welcome questions uh, from all of you as we... Uh, uh, as we dig in, uh, where we can amplify things or clarify certain things that uh, aren 't quite clear that would be of interest so uh, heather i 'll dive right in from there, which is two case studies about North Carolina and Alabama, one about connecting north carolina 's schools by extending broadband to all of them, the other about alabama 's statewide online school, uh, which is known as access yet when it, when i when I Read these two case studies. One thing that jumped out at me was that there were some commonalities from from the get-go. Even though we're talking about two aspects, that there was some similar context, and that they both both initiatives got started through questions about the rural school populations in their midst.
2: That's exactly right, Michael. These are interesting cases in that they have some overlap, which we hadn't entirely anticipated. But both these cases are looking at state-level initiatives to bring greater access to rural populations and to rural students. It's interesting to me because I've actually never lived in a rural area, but in doing this research, I found that one in three of America's school-aged children attend public schools in rural areas or small towns. With with fewer than about twenty five thousand people, so about race to the top, it's interesting that there's about a third of the of the uh, U.S. population is sort of left behind from this, and that's an issue that both of these these cases is grappling with.
1: That's just a, a fascinating statistic, and just to put a cap on that, again, one in three. Uh, students living in in a rural context it 's not something we hear a lot about when we do the um, when, when, when we do these uh, uh, when we think about some of the problems that our schools face and a lot of the questions and so forth so so let 's dig into the North Carolina question as they thought about rural schools uh, in particular. Why why, why didn't they have internet con- connectivity in the rural schools? Why, why did this become a relevant problem? Uh, and was it a problem in other places besides rural areas in North Carolina or was it really rural focus?
2: Well, here's what the problem was in North Carolina. If you think about the state, right in the center you have the, the uh, research triangle where you have Wake Forest and Duke. And University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and kind of a a cluster of the intellectual and economic um, power for the state. And then you go over to the west and you start hitting more difficult terrain and more sparsely populated area down to the south, rocky terrain. Um, Internet providers quite frankly just did not want to have to dig into rock and so you find either very few internet service providers, or else um, a natural monopoly with only one, and so they were able to charge extremely high rates. And so, the, consequently, um, schools, in, in the, particularly in the west and in the, and in the south, were finding that they had to pay um, huge fees to access the internet, if they could access it at all. And and um, several times their, their service also really suffered because of the monopoly. So, for example, some districts reported that it would take them an hour just to upload attendance data because of latency issues that they faced. Even 50, 50 milliseconds of latency caused huge headaches for the districts as they tried to do any of the um, more sophisticated communications that, that schools these days are trying to access. So it, it really became a problem for the state.
1: I mean it's fascinating now to think about in a lot of the environments in which we live having having problems like that of uploading what would seem to be simple files and so forth. What, Why did it become so relevant when it did in the time frame for the case? It looked like that it really internet connectivity had been something that they'd been thinking about through the 90s, through the early 2000s, but it really became an issue in 2006, was there a confluence of factors that really started to bring that um, to their attention Mm -hmm. or was it just this overwhelming um, inconsistent problems that you were just describing?
2: There absolutely was a confluence of factors, and factors that I'm finding are are replicated in many states across the country right now. For example, the state was trying to launch the North Carolina Virtual Public School, which to date, this is a little preview for what has happened in North Carolina, partly as a result of their connectivity initiative, but to date, the North Carolina um, Virtual Public School is the second largest state-run online school in the country, and they had that vision for it at the turn of the century, but they just didn't have the uh, telecommunications infrastructure to enable it. They also were finding that there were some real efficiencies to be gained by creating a statewide student information system, wherein the North Carolina um, Department of Education or, or Department of Public Instruction could push content and, um, out to schools, and schools could respond with attendance data and that, that type of thing. But. That large enough pipes to get the data back and forth in an efficient way, and it
1: just didn't exist. I, so it's really interesting. So it really was three or four things coming together there. When when I read the case study, it seemed like, so they identified this problem then, uh, but they didn't just say, let's solve it tomorrow and be done with it in a year from now. There was really a process in solving this, um, and, and both from a staged perspective as well as how they uh, sort of ticked intact until they figured out the right solution. Can can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. and That's that's exactly right. They felt like um, there was a sense of prioritization. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention in terms of the need, if you think about it, um, some people have had optical fiber that was connecting their their districts to the wide area networks pretty efficiently. Um, but there was a per- percentage of schools, about 10 percent, that were still dealing with copper telephone lines. If you think about those old fifty six k dial-up models. Or they were um, literally having their IT directors go out and connect um, to make a patchwork of antennas, often attaching them to farming silos or radio towers to create uh, a wireless unlicensed wide area network for their districts. And so the, the problem for that percentage, albeit a kind of a small percentage, was really impacting um, quite a number of students across the state. So with that in mind, the state said, you know, let's get together and create um, a very methodological, organized way of going out and bringing internet access to to our rural communities. And the first thing they did was they said, let's just study the problem. They brought together a group of several agencies and organizations and private companies to study the problem. And that's one of the interesting takeaways from their journey in general is that they were so aggressive about bringing in public and private agencies as well as federal dollars to solve the problem. And that was their first step. They they spent a couple, at least a year um, on a feasibility study and $100,000 just to think through how do we extend broadband, what network resources do we have in place, how do we leverage federal E-rate dollars, that kind of thing. And once they had that done, then they said, "You know we're kind of getting a sense of the problem. Let's now launch a North Carolina connectivity initiative and that was in two thousand and six and they they um were to secure six million dollars from the North Carolina legislature and uh, really start to build out a North Carolina system architecture, which they called the north carolina ednet and it was it was a um an interesting model the the ednet was based on um creating a shared education backbone and making sure that each of the districts had access to optical fiber based wide area networks. They made the participation in this um, new network architecture completely voluntary so that districts could sign up if they wanted to, which was interesting because it built a market rate into the um, equation and districts could shop for a better rate if they found that they were able to secure internet access better, cheaper, faster from a different provider. But generally the districts started to find as the initiatives um, got underway that it, it was it was almost always more compelling to them to join this North Carolina EdNet backbone than to do it on their, their own. And then thirdly, after they had done the study and they had started the initiative, then they really started the implementation phase. And that was a three-year process. Of building out the backbone, um, setting up some service bureaus, and making sure that all the infrastructure was in place to be able to roll it out in a prioritized way across the state uh,
0: that
1: that that that's a really great overall description there There are a couple things in there that that uh, occur to me that that are interesting strands for thought, one of them. Um, Everyone on this, uh, who's here today probably can uh, give a little chuckle for every time they've heard, um, uh, you know, say, we'll we'll form a study group, and the study group comes out with recommendations and nothing happens, But, but here's something actually happened, and I was interested in the case study that the districts were really skeptical about the state sort of barging in with Probably with local control dynamics and all the rest, and yet it seemed like the state won them over because, as you said, it wasn't a mandatory thing; it was it was a voluntary thing. Can, I, that jumped out at me. I I, I don't know where, where to go with it, but were there some interesting tidbits that that you found there as well about about winning over the districts?
2: yeah I think the voluntary the voluntary nature of it the opt in model was really important. The other thing that they did right was one of their first moves was to to set up two service bureaus one was the e rate service bureau and for probably most people are familiar with e rate but it's basically a federal communications commission um, program to improve um to help fund Internet access for schools and libraries across the country. Uh, The challenge with E-rate is that it typically is a completely bureaucratic um, and thorny process to get E-rate funds. For those of you who have experienced that, you're you're agreeing. I'm sure that um, often there's an 18-month lag time between the initial application for E rate funds and the time that money actually gets in the bank for districts and it's just really been a headache. And so North Carolina said, you know, let's let's work together as a state and establish a service bureau and offer it as an as an for districts to work together and and all the of E rate funds per application. And that's inter- that's exactly what they did. They hired a man named Ed Chase who drove forty thousand miles across the state to um win the hearts of the districts, to help them with E-Rate, to set up workshops, to answer their questions, and that alone proved to be really um, compelling for the districts and and helps them get on board with the initiative and help them feel like like the state for once actually had their best interest in mind. And the second thing that they did was they set up um, a network engineering service bureau. They were able to get three Cisco um, executives pro bono to actually leave Cisco for a while and just do this as a of a broadening exercise for them. And it turned out that almost every district in the state ended up using the Network Engineering Service Bureau for troubleshooting and to set up their own, um, to redesign their local networks. And that proved to be a really popular strategy and, and win a lot of support from the, from the locals.
1: That's, that's, that's really helpful. I, and and I, so, so one other thing that jumped out of this was the public-private partnership. And uh, how they were able to grab resources that weren't necessarily state dollars um, to support this initiative. Uh, I, I guess I'd, I'd ask you to elaborate a little bit more on that. But but maybe maybe the bigger question is you've you mentioned a number of strands that seem pretty important. Are there ones of these that mattered most? You think that were that were more critical than others to getting this done and, and successfully so?
2: Well, absolutely. The, the finding part, finding um, resource beyond just the state government proved invaluable. As I mentioned, E-rate, um, the, the team depended on E-rate to fund about half of their budget. And so turning to the federal government for funds that were already in place, that were already being offered up, but just were not Yet being captured, there was only about a 64% capture rate of e-rate funds prior to this initiative, and to turn that around and be able to capture more of that money that was just being left on the table was a huge success for them. Uh, they also found that collaborations with um, private partnerships, private companies, worked really well. Um, there, the, there was a nonprofit called MCNC that managed um, the university, the higher education um, internet infrastructure for the state called Necron. And the initiative did two interesting things. One, they found that they could use Necron as the backbone for their system. So they basically piggybacked on the higher education internet infrastructure to um, as the backbone for their own system. K-12 was not yet very um, represented on that Necron network. And so uh, the the state turned to Necron and said let's use, let's expand your coverage so that you're not just helping the higher ed- education community but you're also providing um, faster internet servicing for the K-12 community. And then the other way that Necron was valuable was that Necron had relations, relationships with internet service providers like AT&T, Time Warner, CenturyLink and um, the initiative found that by partnering with Necron um, to broker group contracts with these internet service providers, they were able to secure much better rates and um, contracts for, for internet service than if the districts were negotiating uh, their own third party suppliers one at a time as they had been in the past.
1: I got gotcha. what, 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 One other question that jumped out at me and then um wanna maybe transition from there to alabama but um which is so there there seem to be a lot of things they 've learned to capture resources outside of the state, really effective use of existing institutions that maybe weren 't working for k twelve in general uh, really comes out of that discussion loud and clear uh, what about in terms of sustainability what what, what happens next they 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 have They have uh, broadband uh, into all the schools. It's running successfully. They have a great state office that looks like it continues maybe to uh, handle E-rate requests. For upgrades, I guess is part of it. But what if we have significantly big, uh, bigger demands in the future? D- do we have a feel for that, or is that a concern? Or, 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 or and maybe it should be, should be asked to the to the room how other places uh, have handled that as well. Uh, but, but, did, did you get a feel for that, or is it still a question mark?
2: No, and that's a great question, Michael. And I'd be interested to hear from the room if others have um, thoughts about. Uh, system upgrades, once an initial back bonus put in place, how do you make sure that it stays up to date? And as we talk about Alabama, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. When the, when the Federal Communications Commission issued its 2010 national broadband report, it suggested that high speed internet access is about 4 megabits per second or higher. Um, we're finding that in Alabama, which we'll t- turn to next, they're now looking at Providing speeds of up to 50 megabits per second, and so um, whereas North Carolina touted that they they had everyone up at at 10 or 20 megabits per second, um, by the time that they were done with this this initiative, um, the question is how do they continue to manage upgrades? Because we're looking at other states that are now looking at 50 megabits per second, so it's it's an ongoing problem now and and. Uh, Definitely worthy of, of further research to, to, to just observe how North Carolina is managing to, or if they're managing to keep their their network up to date now that they've got it in place.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking out loud. With North Carolina Virtual Public School becoming so large, uh, uh, content demands on 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 connectivity and, and speed and so forth becoming more and more, uh, and, and 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 so forth. It seems like that would be a big uh, issue, which is not just to get up to today's speed, but be be ahead of wherever it might uh, need to be uh, in the future, particularly as fiber optics and so forth uh, become ever more real and deliver very fast uh, uh, internet speeds and and, and keep the rat race going, if you will. With with that and and thinking about that link to content, I'd like to transition uh, to Alabama, of course to everyone in the chat room, you can always fire questions uh, into the chats and I'll bring them into the conversation with Heather as well. Uh, and we can revisit North Carolina if there's questions as we move on to Alabama. But but thinking about Alabama, here in, in, in this case study you really uh, profile um, the, uh, the access program um, which which uh well uh, maybe maybe first uh for, for the people listening, uh you can you can tell us what access stands for. Uh and, and and also again frame the problem here. Uh what what problem were they trying to start by solving uh by, by starting a um excuse me, what problem were they trying to solve by starting a statewide online school?
2: Great. Okay. So it's it's kind of a, um, an interesting exercise to put these two cases side by side because with North Carolina we're looking at a state that wanted to bring internet infrastructure to their schoolrooms and now with Alabama we kind of get a feel for why and the power behind having um, high-speed connectivity bringing content to classrooms even in the most rural areas. Let me give you an example. Um, a gentleman by the name of Larry Rains was principal of verbena High School, a K-12 school with 550 students. And um, until access came to be there were literally no advanced placement courses at that school. They only offered Spanish 1 and Spanish 2 for foreign languages. And when asked him about electives, what electives they offered, he said they had two agri-science and family and consumer science. So I think that that was kind of representative of the types of um, just paucity of courses and curriculum in, a, in, in some of the rural areas, not because of this, the districts were not trying, it was just that in small areas it's hard to provide a full curriculum with enough teachers to cover all of the different topics that students might want to learn about. And for students even to be able to get um, an advanced diploma because they just did not have access to the trigonometry and the other more advanced courses that they needed to, to be able to succeed. And so Alabama said, you know, we're not really happy with the way we've been facing education up until then. Their motto was, "Well, at least we're not Mississippi." <laughs> and uh, people, um, the governor, Governor Riley, said, "You know, we can do better than this, and we can we can make Alabama um, more equitable, even for the people who don't have access to to the um, higher level coursework." And and so that that was some of the thinking behind the. Access initiative, which seems for Alabama connecting classrooms educators and schools statewide
1: gotcha so that's quite that's quite an acronym I see why they called it access uh, the uh, and, and and that that rural story again is, <laughs> is 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 you know that's i mean it 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 just keeps hitting you i guess in both of these case studies about how significant a, a problem that is so so they started the access program. And and it looks like they started it with the task force. So there's some similarities there with basically the study group. Uh, but then the task force it seems uh to come to something that's maybe less familiar to a lot of people in, in this room who are used to online learning and using content in new ways and open source and so forth. Uh but but there 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 may be um there, there may be, uh, you know, they come out with this way of two forms of delivering uh, the courses. One being this video conferencing based instruction and this other which, which is really web based or online learning. Uh, how did that come about and, and, and how has it worked out for them and, and why, why, why are these two different systems?
2: Well, if you have to kind of get in the head of the access administrators back in 2004 and the task force as they were thinking about putting together this organization to bring access to their schools, what did they know? What they knew was that um, about 20% of their schools currently had a way of, of bringing education opportunities to their students, what they didn't exist before. And that was through interactive video conferencing where basically there was a sending school and there were up to three receiving schools. And the teacher at the sending school would stand at the front of the classroom. Um, a video projector would capture, i mean, I'm sorry, a video camera would capture her or his lecture and then Uh, disseminate it to these three receiving schools and the students in those schools would just have to watch the teacher on a big screen in the front of the the classroom. And there were were microphones and speakers and it was distance learning in the same way that most of us think about distance learning. Well, this is what the task force also was familiar with. As I said, 20% of the schools had interactive video conferencing, and they had in their heads, gosh, this is something that we can resonate with, this makes sense for our students, this is a way for some of our students to get access to courses that are already being taught in Alabama, but in schools that our students are not currently attending. And so that was sort of their starting point, but they'd also heard about this new phenomenon called online learning, and they said, why don't we throw some of that in the mix, too, and experiment with it, even though it's a little scary to us, we don't really understand the idea of, um, an Internet platform delivering content or instruction, but were willing to go there. And so they developed this two prong system of bringing opportunities to their students. One, interactive video conferencing, which they felt more familiar and comfortable with, but two, an experimentation with online learning as sort of a new medium that potentially could also offer some benefits for their students.
1: Gotcha. Uh, Gotcha, Heather. So, So, with the um, with the video conferencing system specifically, because I, I found that to be pretty interesting, um, is is how do they equip the schools? What, what does that cost? What it, so we've just talked about infrastructure with broadband. Um, now we're talking about a different sort of infrastructure with the video mm-hmm. camera. And the computers required, and 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 so forth. How how are they uh, able to do that? Uh, and and one of the things that some of the people in the chat room are talking about right now, in terms of North Carolina, is that every time uh, they, they they you know boost broadband, whether it's 20, 30 megabyte connection, uh, you know they're hitting 100% capacity almost immediately. Uh, so 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 can can you give a little bit more? Um, uh-huh. uh, uh, in flight into those those infrastructure needs.
2: Yep, those are good questions. So, equipment and infrastructure, big questions. Um, for equipment, the the goal was to equip each of the 371 high schools in Alabama public high schools with a, what they termed a 21st century classroom, and that was an interactive whiteboard, um, all the equipment they needed for interactive video conferencing, 25 tablet computers that sort of thing. The budget for those 21st century classrooms was up to $85,000 per school. Um, it ranged from 50 dollars to $85,000 depending on what equipment the schools already had in place. 11 schools already had basically 21st century classrooms, so they ended up granting 360 grants ranging from 50 dollars to $85,000 to equip these schools with 21st century classrooms. One interesting question from that is could they have done it cheaper? If they had only done online learning instead of also incorporating interactive video conferencing what what would that have looked like and it looks like they could have saved between thirty to thirty two thousand dollars per implementation by um eliminating some of the interactive video conferencing but on the other hand, would they have been able to do anything at all because the interactive video conferencing was certainly very helpful for them politically to get this through legislature pretty quickly um in terms of uh, the question about the fact that the, uh, the size of the pipes seems to be increasing as fast as, as anything else and demand seems to, to just be almost insatiable for um, high speed internet access. That certainly has been the experience in Alabama. Through the Alabama's initiative they um, contracted with the Alabama Supercomputer Authority which is the parallel organization the one I spoke about earlier for North Carolina, the the Air, the the Necron network. In Alabama it was called the Aaron network and it was also um, a government funded high-speed network to serve government schools and libraries. Um, and Alabama asked the Alabama supercomputer authority which ran Aaron to come in and help ensure high-speed connectivity for all of the schools in Alabama who are participating with these 21st century classrooms. And the initial goal was to make sure that each of these 371 high schools had 20 megabits per second of connectivity, but they're now working on um, getting them up to 50 megabits per second. And I think Alabama has done a pretty good job of ensuring that they have the organizational capacity and um, priority To continue with these system upgrades using the Alabama Supercomputer Authority to ensure that the that the um, capacity internet capacity more or less keeps pace with demand, Um, with the caveat that this is government funded, and at any point the budgets could be cut, and that would be that in terms of continuing the system upgrades.
1: Gotcha. That's that's interesting. And another part of necessary conditions uh, to deliver this that that sort of emerged uh, from this was uh, the training of the teachers. Uh, And and it seemed like they did a major, in in Alabama, a major effort around trying to equip and prepare teachers uh, to to be able to work in in both environments and the blending of the two environments. Can, Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. And I do think the teacher training is one of the notable aspects of Alabama's uh, program and probably worth focusing in on if anyone wants to read more. But um, to date, Alabama has trained 659 teachers to equip them with with the skills they need to be either video conferencing or web-based instructors. And that's that's quite a sizable feat, I think. Um, the way they did that was they set up support centers using three different, um, three different community resources. One was Troy University, the second Madison City Schools, and the third the University of Alabama. And these support centers became the um, focus of the locus of training for for, uh, teachers. And teachers basically had to um, undergo a few days of intensive training, and then they um, became part of, of a mentor and protege relationship to learn the ropes from an experienced um, distance or online learning teacher. And then um, Access has also really taken advantage of their LMS to provide um, continual resources and professional development to keep their teaching staff up to date. Um, and so I think they've, they've done an interesting job of really thinking through the teacher um, training aspect. They've followed Nakel's guidelines for the professional development of online teachers, and I think those are worthy of reference just because INACLE has done some interesting work thinking about um, how to equip online teachers with the skills they need. It's, it's a different modality and teachers need uh, a different set of skills as they're thinking about uh, working in an online environment.
1: I, that, that, that's very helpful. Just, just uh, you're, you're probably listening to my questions. There's, there's a really robust discussion going on right now in the chat room uh, about uh, constraints still on, on on broadband and some of the national broadband uh plans uh, uh, plans if you will uh and and as well as um uh, what, what, what the limitations of the word broadband is is something interesting that just came out. If, if people are listening in and have perspectives on this, to get them in the chat room, I think would be great. Either you've dealt with E-rate or you've uh, you, you've you've worked in a district uh, that, that that is being influenced by them, getting more data out there about the frustrations of this uh, would, would would be really helpful. Uh, Heather, I want to turn to something that's near and dear to Steve's heart. Um, which is uh, course development and content development and and, and so forth. And I was interested in the case study that Alabama sort of took two routes on this. Firstly, they they seem to have contracted with a a couple providers for perpetual licenses uh, for their courses, and, and I'd love you to talk through what that means and, and doesn't mean. And then secondly, they seem to have done a bunch of uh, homegrown, created a bunch of homegrown courses. Can you talk about that evolution and that process and, and, and how that took place?
2: Sure. So uh, Alabama felt like they wanted to be able to, to scale the program without being um, susceptible to too many variable costs. And by saying that I mean that they wanted to um, secure perpetual licenses from their providers so that they they could spread them over as many seats as they wanted without paying incremental dollars per student. And the two vendors that were willing to work with them or two providers that were willing to work with them based on those terms were Florida Virtual School and Aventa Learning. So to date, uh, virtual school has developed 32 courses, and Eventual Learning has developed 13 courses, and those were both on the perpetual license model, meaning that Alabama paid a lump sum for the for the courses, and they were at liberty to customize them and to extend them to as many students as they wanted. At the same time, their program office, which is housed in the Alabama State Department of Education, has developed a pretty robust system of its own for developing courses um, to date they've developed, they developed ha- they offer a total of one hundred and fifteen courses including credit and the not for credit remediation courses and um, the office has worked pretty extensively um, sometimes taking the the Florida virtual school or event learning courses and then and then modifying them sometimes starting from scratch um, oftentimes using materials from open source places like um, hippocampus and um, adjusting them for their own needs. Teachers that want to um, offer a course online are welcome to submit a sample lesson to the program office and then go through a pretty rigorous process with evaluators and and um, just a, a a sophisticated process to to ensure that the course is high quality, and to to see if it passes muster enough that it becomes one of accesses course
1: offerings. So, so so can I take you back on one thing, uh, which is the um so the licensing of of the Florida Virtual School and Aventa courses. Uh, are, when it's a perpetual mm-hmm. license, if Florida Virtual School then updates it. Does uh, d- does Access get that update, or, or, or do you know the answer to that?
2: My understanding is that they do pay um, uh, a, a, a small fee on an annual basis for the updates. If, if one of our listeners has more information on that, I'd love to hear it, but my recollection is that there is a small fee that they pay.
1: Gotcha. Got, got,
2: but it's not linked at all to um, number of students in the class.
1: Gotcha. Okay, that's helpful. One question from the chat room from Tim. Uh, are, are these courses delivered in a similar manner um, to Florida Virtual School, or does the Access Program have a different delivery method? So, so I guess maybe if you can speak to a little bit, so, so we've heard the video conferencing delivery method of, of courses in the online learning delivery, so if they're using Florida Virtual School content, would they only be using that in one or the other, or do they adapt it for the uh, video conferencing uh, uh, um or do they adapt it for the video conferencing, uh, uh, you know, medium?
2: Okay, so the the video conferencing medium has nothing to do with the Florida virtual school or eventual learning courses. It's completely um, teacher based and it's basically a, sending, a teacher at the sending school extending his or her lecture to students at other schools. Um, the only addition to that thought though is that increasingly access is encouraging its teachers to blend um, video conferencing with the online learning and so the sending school teacher might direct uh, her students to now turn to the learning management system and do some sort of an activity online and then return the lecture or to put an assignment into the dropbox or something like that. Um, But primarily the virtual school and eventual learning content is being used for the online learning portion of Access, this program. And it's um, staffed by Access teachers. So it's Alabama certified teachers that are providing the online teaching, but it's content that's primarily created by Florida and Evental Learning um, with some customization by Alabama that varies. Sometimes sometimes it very little customization. Sometimes Alabama said they want to completely
1: reduce certain modules in the courses. Gotcha. Now, some some of that obviously is because of distinct Alabama standards. Uh, I, I understand Alabama is one of the states that's adopted Common Core. Yeah, it may be too early to know how that's going to uh, adjust some of their practices, but did you get any insight into that?
2: Um, I think that Alabama has a pretty robust program office that's in the business right now, of of customizing content, and so that's what they're doing, and I and I expect that they will continue to do that. Um, One interesting development, though, is that uh, recently Alabama lifted the seat time requirement, and has meaning that that. that students no longer have to complete a certain number of hours of coursework in order to pass the course, but they can demonstrate competency and thereby pass out of a course, which is a great development, in my opinion, for um, bringing flexibility and self-facing to to Alabama students. With that development, I think that there's the possibility that that Alabama could move in a direction of really embracing high-quality content that will allow students to move through courses as efficiently and effectively as possible and demonstrate that competency in the the, um, most agile way possible for each student. And that's that's an optimistic thing about the lifting of the seat time requirement is that I think it really potentially could incentivize or free up um, the system to favor high quality content.
1: So so the people in the chat room seem to be agreeing that the uh, getting rid of seat time and moving to a competency-based or mastery-based learning system uh, is a a breakthrough uh, to use uh, some people's language. Uh, So so the natural question follows from that. Florida Virtual School has done that as well, uh, largely getting beyond seat time. Uh, and they have an interesting funding model that backs that up. Alabama has a very different funding model from Florida. Can you talk about uh obviously talk about it in the context of alabama but but contrast it a little bit just to just to paint the picture for 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 the audience?
2: Sure. Well, Alabama actually has a similar funding model to Florida in its early days. In its early days, Florida was based on a lump sum funding model where there was just a set line item funding allocation from the Florida legislature to fund the whole Florida virtual school program. In a similar way, Alabama gets a lump sum from the Alabama legislature. It, It equates to roughly $20 million a year. And to date, they're not really seeing that that's maxing out their ability to to meet demand. There haven't been wait lists um, and the directors of the program at the state office feel like so far they've pretty much been able to do what they want with that money. Um, They haven't been able to expand the the implementation of 21st century classrooms beyond one first high school, but they found that they can meet um, increased demand for courses by by favoring the development of online courses which don't necessitate 21st century classrooms. They can be done anytime, anywhere. Um, now, the question though, as you bring out Florida Virtual School, and it's kind of an interesting um, example, because Florida Virtual School found that eventually they did um, find capacity constraints. And that the lump sum funding wasn't enough to meet demand, and they, they transitioned to a per pupil funding model, which allowed their program to scale in perfect step with with student demand, and receive incremental funding for each student who who took a course. And the question is whether Alabama will find eventually, and hopefully they will find that their program is is so popular and demand demand is so robust that eventually. They'll need um, incremental dollars per student to make sure that each student has enough um, budget to cover that that extra demand.
1: Uh, that, that's really that's really interesting. But in, in essence, they don't get paid on a course by course basis. Then, nor do they get paid if uh, successful completion, as in as in the Florida um, Florida um, model. Uh, so, so that's a significant um, uh, difference there. Um, uh, So there's a number of questions in the chat room that I want to call out. Uh, So one question is, uh, the North Carolina and Alabama courses, do they serve anyone out of state? Do you know know the answer to that?
2: Um, I believe that, I don't know about North Carolina, and, and, and we didn't really dive into North Carolina virtual public school, but for Alabama access, my understanding is that it's just students in the state, and it's only public school students, and it does not include homeschool students.
1: Okay, that, that's really interesting. Some, someone else brings up a question of, um, uh, so, so w- which is that well, I'll ask it a different way from what they did, but uh, they asked it in terms of teachers and their use of digital content. It seems that actually one of Access's goals going forward is around this question, which is to uh, uh, change the way teachers teach in physical classrooms. Am I reading that correctly? What's up with that, if you will? Mm
2: Yeah, so Dr. Maddox, who is the... um, current Access Administrator in charge of the program in the State Department. She has set as a goal for Access in the future, sort of her her next steps for Access um, are to bring Access tools, the learning management system and some of the digital learning objects to traditional classrooms so that traditional teachers can use them to potentially enrich or enhance their program. Um, In institute parlance, these would be considered sustaining technologies because they're just um, bringing enhancements or or potential improvements along the current value proposition of the traditional classroom. And the question is whether or not this will be a good thing for Alabama. I think that sustaining innovation certainly can can, um, bring improvements to the current system but if Alabama is looking for information it's not just saying well, at least we're not Mississippi and they really want to bring transformative change to the students across the state, then my um, preference would be to continue to make the access courses themselves compelling and um, effective and uh, so desirable that students across the state will start finding that they really are um, motivated to look to the richness of an online or blended environment um, to bring them their learning in a more efficient and effective and potentially transformative way.
1: So so that's interesting. Uh, so, So they're focusing on trying to get teachers to start to use this content in the classroom but then not actually changing maybe some of the constraints of what a classroom looks like or the seat time. Uh, rules that are in place when it's being used there. So, so it would, in, in effect, they might have competency-based learning for their courses, but not for the, uh, n- not not when the content uh, is being used in that way. It sounds like.
2: Yeah, I think that if the tradi- if the if you're thinking about a traditional classroom, which where the, by and large the 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 class moves at the same pace with a teacher um le- trying to lead classroom instruction for, for 30 students relatively um, in a standardized way that layering digital learning objects into that curriculum could be slightly enhancing but potentially not transformative. And so my preference in thinking about the future of access would be for it to continue to think about how to bring um, this new medium of online learning to students across the state with the very best coursework and the very best teachers and the very best offerings that they can and allowing that to to continue to get a footing and see if it might become a compelling um, way for students to to get the very best education possible if they're living in a very rural part of southern Alabama. Uh,
1: that, no, that's, that, that's very interesting and, and the risk of uh, cramming in our language does, does seem high. Uh, it also seems like by limiting uh and not allowing the fte to follow the student maybe the opportunities to create some really cool blended learning models that make a really effective use of digital content uh and, and, and so forth uh uh would would be uh w- would would be limited maybe as well uh what, what we're, we're getting sort of close to the witching hour as they say so so heather i'm curious as, as you step back uh from from these two cases um Both dealing with rural contexts, uh, one very focused on an infrastructure, the other on a broader look that involves infrastructure certainly and training of teachers and some of these other questions. Uh, Were were there similarities that just struck you um, uh, in in, in both? Were were, were there either strengths or weaknesses in both that, that cut across?
2: Sure, yeah, and that's the that's sort of fun thing about even this opportunity today to, to speak about these two cases side by side is that it's, it's really illuminating to me to think about the fact that the one in three students are in rural sc- rural schools and that we're finding two states here who are thinking about the fact that there are there is an amazingly new opportunity to embrace um, some of the virtues of digital learning. Uh, to to potentially transform schools. And they're thinking about how do we build out the infrastructure and the courses and the teachers and all of the pieces that it takes to give our students access to these opportunities. One thing that was striking to me is that in both cases, they were governor initiated in um, North Carolina. It was at the time, Lieutenant Governor Purdue, who is now the the acting governor of of North Carolina. And in in Alabama, it's, it's Governor Riley. And they both uh, chose high profile task forces of people who were able to have the the legislative heft to make things happen quickly. They chose high profile people both from the public and the private sector to come together as as heavyweight teams in our parlance and create a new process for delivering education to to students um, in the, in North Carolina a woman by the name of Myra Best who was an assistant to the governor was considered the hammer because she really just drove through the legislation. And and in both states it took that type of um charismatic and dedicated leadership from the from the upper levels of the government. The state government happen. So I think there's other states that are thinking about it. It's gonna take leadership from the top. Um and then thing that has just really resonated with me is that the infrastructure is such an important piece in building a a groundwork for the the transformation to take place, and right now we see North Carolina Virtual School, which is the second largest state-run virtual school in the country, and in Alabama, Access Program is the third largest state-run virtual school in the country. In both instances, as they um, did their business to get the infrastructure in place, potentially there's an argument that it's just not a coincidence that now they both have pretty robust state virtual schools.
1: Great. Well, I I think with that, uh, we, we we ought to start to wrap up. But uh, I, I just want to thank everyone uh, once again. And, and thank you, Heather, for, for providing us such a... Uh, a, a good uh, both summary of, the, of each of these case studies and what they were doing in North Carolina to bring connectivity to all of the schools uh, that could handle this burgeoning internet uh, uh, needs and so forth. And then in Alabama to actually solve uh, what, what was a big problem with a lot of rural students not having access to courses and so forth and what else that brought about and tying it together then with these similarities. Uh, and thank you to the audience with some great commentary in the background both about the challenges and where, where things have gotten stuck up and some exciting opportunities as well uh, that, that I see uh, out, out of here as well. So uh, as always, thank you, Heather. Thank you to the audience and thank you to Steve for uh, allowing us to host it. And Steve, I will kick it back to you so you can tell them what's coming up next.
0: if you're hearing me. Am I back on? Anyway, thanks to both of you. That was terrific. Uh, again, Michael, always interesting to see what comes out of InnerSight and um, the ways in which you inform the conversation. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central. Uh, and coming up uh, next week, Jim Klein on social networking and our panel on unschooling. Uh, I'm going to clap again. There's the clapping hand at the bottom of your participant window that lets you clap. Thank you so much, Michael and Heather.
2: So, Michael, can you hear me? I'm wondering if you if my audio came through.
1: Yep, I can hear you, Steve, loud and clear.
0: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> that was sure fun, really appreciate it. And um, appreciate the, the work that you do there. And thanks for coming on. Okay, so we're gonna close up now. Heather, thank you again. Thanks for, for figuring out the phone situation.